Welcome to Podcast 83, a regular look at the news, stories, and trends related to Michigan's 83 counties from the Michigan Association of Counties. All right, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Podcast 83, the podcast put on by the Michigan Association of Counties. Today, we, of course, are joined by Dina Bosworth, our Director of Government Affairs, and then a new face on the podcast, Steve Lytle from Dykema Law Firm here in Lansing. He's a member there. Steve, how you doing? I'm doing well. Hope you're doing well, Steve. Yeah, doing great. Thanks. Dina, you're doing great? I'm doing great. All right. Well, we're recording this kind of the, the end of uh, 2023 here, but I think it'll probably end up airing beginning of 2024. So uh, let's get right into it. So we brought Steve here today because there is an initiative, a referendum, and we'll kind of maybe get into the differences there too. Steve can talk to that. Uh, at the Board of Canvassers that has to do uh, with basically eliminating, eliminating property taxes. All property taxes. So start doing the math in your head. I'm sure when you hear that, you're probably saying to yourself, wow, that seems like it'd be a great idea. But when you start digging into it more and more as far as the impacts on local governments, specifically counties, of course, schools, it becomes a lot different conversation. So that's why we brought in Steve today. He's kind of a resident expert on these, these type of uh, initiatives that go through the State Board of Canvassers. And we're going to talk a little bit today about process First, you know, what, what is the process to get in front of the canvassers? What is the process once you're approved? If you're approved, if you're not approved, how does that all work? So with that, Steve, I'll kind of turn it over to you. What, what can you tell us a little bit about what's been in front of the, the canvassers? What are we talking about here? Sure. Well, Steve, uh, the Michigan Constitution sort of, well, doesn't sort of, it actually permits uh, citizens, registered voters, to engage in three different forms of direct democracy. Uh, one is a proposal to amend the state constitution, which requires a certain number of signatures. Another is a proposal to initiate a law, much like the legislature would pass a state law. Uh, there is a process with signatures to propose before the legislature, and if the legislature doesn't approve or act, to have the voters approve the law, notwithstanding action or inaction by the legislature. And the third is the referendum, and that's the right of voters to submit signatures and submit the question of whether or not a law enacted by the legislature should take effect or not. Originally with the uh, so-called Ax My Tax proposal, uh, the proponents submitted a proposal that did one of the two, th that did two of the things permitted under the constitution at, at the same time which is not permitted. They both proposed amending the state constitution and they secondly proposed uh, repealing the General Property Tax Act, which authorizes all real and personal property taxes in the state and has since 1893. Uh, that's not permitted on our, under our constitution. So when they first appeared before the Board of State Canvassers, they withdrew their proposal. So they were at the canvassers one time, so then they withdrew that first proposal, then they came back again, correct? Correct. They committed, uh, they submitted a second proposal, uh, which uh, was only a constitutional amendment. They had dropped the concept of also repealing the general property tax at the same time, but it still has the same effect. Okay. Um, if adopted and affected, it would repeal all property taxes. It would prohibit the levying of property taxes uh, and prohibit the levying of alternatives uh, 
based on property. So effectively, even though the General Property Tax Act would not be repealed, uh, the Constitution would prohibit after 2024, um, uh, 2025, actually, the levying of all property taxes in Michigan. So, Steve, that, oh, sorry, when they did this, did they say what their motivation was? I mean, why is it just save, you know, Michigan residents money and we don't want local services? Or do they have to justify that when they go before the Board of Canvassers? Yeah, before the Board of Canvassers, it's really usually not about the substance of the proposal or reasons why proponents want to do it or not. And there, there's a few things that the Board of Canvassers can do. They're actually optional. All right. So optionally, uh, a group can ask the um, Board of State Canvassers to review and approve the form of the petition. State law has a whole host of mandatory elements that apply to a petition, whether it's for a constitutional amendment, an initiative, or a referendum. For example, that has to be on eight and a half by 14 inch size paper. If it's on eight and a half by 13.5 inch paper, any signature on it is invalid. There are certain font sizes that apply, multiple different font sizes and certain information that must be on the petition. Because of that, the board provides this optional service for approval as to form. Uh, and if you have that approval, it's uh, more likely that your petition complies with the requirements of Michigan law. And it's unlikely that the Board of Canvassers will reject your petition when submitted with signatures for not complying. The proponents of Act My Tax didn't ask the board to review the form of the proposal. Uh, they did ask the board uh, to approve a 100 word summary of their proposal. Uh, and um, the that is also optional. But under a state law in effect since 2018, if you ask for and receive approval of a 100-word summary that appears on the petition when uh, voters are asked to sign it, if that 100-word uh, statement is fair, impartial, doesn't uh, produce prejudice for or against the proposal under the statutory standard, uh, then it's a valid summary. Uh, and if you get approval by the Board of State Canvassers, state law prohibits uh, the validity of that summary from being later challenged. Um, but does that uh, summary, the, does that summary, is that summary on the petition or is that summary act as a petition? That the summary actually has to be printed on the front page of the petition. So okay. state law requires there to be an impartial 100 word summary on the front page of the petition to sort of describe to voters in you know, 100 words or less what, what a proposal might be attempting to do. And you know, the actual proposal itself may be you know, multiple pages, multiple sections of the Constitution uh, long. So to provide voters a summary and to provide them an impartial summary, state law provides this process. Uh, and uh, the board, however, was unwilling uh, to approve uh, the summary submitted by the Ask My Tax proponents at their November uh, meeting. Uh, the folks unwilling to vote indicated that they believed it was insufficient, that the Ask My Tax proponents hadn't submitted a complete petition, and the Ask My Tax proponents didn't indicate all of the provisions of the Constitution that would be altered or abrogated uh, by their 
proposal, you know, changed or effectively ended or abolished. That's alter or abrogate. And for that reason, there were insufficient votes to approve the summary. So that means that the proponents of the petition does not yet have an approved 100 word summary that would have the benefit of the safe zone. Nor an approved form. Nor an approved form. So no uh, summary, no, no form petition. But the group has said they're going to go out and collect signatures, correct? Yep. So how does that work? It seems to me if you don't have a summary, you don't have a form, you're collecting signatures on nothing that's been approved. Wouldn't essentially those signatures possibly be invalid at some point if their language was not approved? Well, the uh, proponents of the uh, proposal are assuming a pretty high risk that if they go out and collect the signatures, and even if they collect sufficient signatures, that the petitions will be rejected because the signatures are on petitions that don't meet the requirements of Michigan law. One, the summary may not be a fair and impartial and accurate description of the proposal, and they would not have the benefit of a safe harbor with a an approved 100-word summary. Similarly, if there are any form requirements, or for example, uh, one of the form um, arguably substantive requirements is that any proposal to amend the Constitution uh, has to indicate every provision of the Constitution that would be altered or abrogated by the proposal. Um, and if for whatever reason the proponents don't include an altered or abrogated provision, the Michigan Supreme Court has said that's a reason to invalidate the entire petition. So those are the risks that uh, the proponents of the proposal um, uh, are assuming that they attempt to circulate without Board of State Canvassers approval. And, you know, were, they, were they to circulate and file with the Board of State Canvassers you know, sometime before the July 8th, 2024 deadline for 2024 proposed constitutional amendments? I suspect uh, that they will be faced with a challenge uh, that all of the signatures are invalid because their petitions likely not having been approved by the Board of State Canvassers as to form or, or summary, I do not comply with the mandatory requirements of the Michigan election. How there many signatures? Over, how, oh, oh, sorry. How many signatures do they have to gather before July? Uh, there are, they're required to secure 446,198 or more signatures from registered Michigan voters on compliant petitions by July 8th of 2024, if they would like their proposed constitutional amendment submitted to voters in November of 2024. I will say that um, there is one mandatory requirement under state law. State law does mandate that before the group circulates their petition, they are at least required to submit a copy with to the state uh, secretary of state. Uh, as of today, uh, just prior to this, uh, the taping of this podcast, that had not occurred. Uh, the group is publicly indicating that they planned uh, to launch their petition drive uh, January 1. So there could be a scenario where um, they're collecting signatures, determine, let's say, January, February, that they want to go back in front of the canvassers, make sure that what they're collecting may or may not be okay. 
it's not approved, then they have to start back over again from ground zero with signatures, correct? That's correct. I mean, the group has indicated they're not going back to the Board oh. of State canvassers publicly for further approval. They've made those statements. They've been publicly reported in the media. They could change their mind, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but the law does not permit two versions of a petition. Now, let's say you were to start on your own uh, and circulate and get 25,000 signatures, as an example, and then decide, you know what? We think our petition may not comply with the form requirements of state law or with the summary requirements of state law. And you would then go to get a new petition approved uh, by the board as to form and to summary. Uh, you would have to start over and those 25,000 signatures would be invalid and would not count. Hmm. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of <laughs> significant amount of risk there to go out and, on your own and do it. Yeah, when I'm advising ballot question committees, you know, when I'm in the position of representing the committee that actually wants to qualify something for the proposal, my advice is to, before you circulate any petitions, uh, secure approval as to form by the Board of State Canvassers and approval of the summary from the Board of State Canvassers. So let's talk um, briefly about what they are proposing. Can you tell us a little bit about what the language you have seen? I know we don't have anything approved to kind of discuss, but sure. basically what the, the intent maybe is and what you've seen as far as what they've proposed. Right, we, we do have an actual proposal with actual proposed changes to the constitution that was submitted uh, in November uh, or for the uh, November board meeting of the Board of State Canvassers. Um, so we know what uh, has been proposed. The group has publicly indicated that they don't plan to change their proposal. Uh, and um, so we have a sense of what they plan to propose. Uh, so there's a few major things. Uh, and then I think probably more important, you know, some of the details and then most important, the implications of what they propose. Uh, but they prohibit, uh, propose to prohibit the imposition of any tax on real property after 2025. So no governmental entity, state, local, uh, county, um, uh, intergovernmental would be permitted under the Michigan Constitution to levy a property tax. Uh, and they would then also sort of take it a step further um, and prohibit enactment of a state law or local ordinance that provides any sort of alternative means for taxing real and personal property after 2025. Uh, and then the third abolition of property taxes is there's a, an immediate repeal or abolition in the constitution of the property tax that Michigan imposes on telephone companies and railroads. That would occur immediately as soon as the proposal is certified uh, if it were to be adopted in 2024. I mean, if you look at revenue projections from 2022, uh, the total impact of that is, you know, roughly $17.3 billion in property taxes you know, at 2022 rates would be, would be prohibited. Uh, and the impact for counties based on estimates that I've seen is around you know, $2.8, $2.9 billion in 2022 tax dollars. That's insane. I, so, that's, so that's the first piece. Prohibit are, the are special assessments included in that too? No, technically, a special assessment is not a property tax, but um, note that um, if you repeal the authority to levy taxes, we have a number of special assessments 
and also um, specific taxes that are levied in lieu of property taxes that rely in many instances or are levied in lieu of the property tax. And if you're not collecting property taxes, there's no mechanism in many instances to collect those special yeah. assessments uh, or um, uh, uh, specific taxes. So the, the implications are likely uh, far beyond the $17.3 billion just in straight up uh, property taxes levied under the general property. So that's the first piece, you know, eliminate the authority to levy all those taxes. Uh, the next piece is to require a super majority vote for tax increases and to um, shift Michigan from majority rule to minority rule on tax uh, policy, empowering, you know, minorities in the legislature, communities, and special interests to determine tax policy, not whoever gets the most votes. So they would require a two thirds vote of both houses of the Michigan legislature to enact any law that would increase state revenue by more than a 10th of 1% over five years. So essentially any sort of new tax uh, enacted by the legislature would require a two thirds vote of both chambers, empowering a minority of the legislature to set tax policy for the state. And then at the local level, uh, they would require a two-thirds vote at any election for any amendment or amendments to approve a township, city, or countywide tax. So right now, under the existing constitution, um, you know, if you're in a county uh, and there's a decision to be made on a tax rate uh, or a, a tax of any kind, extension of a tax, uh, two, it, it requires a majority vote. Whoever gets the most votes wins. Uh, but uh, this would require a two-thirds vote moving forward uh, after 2024 for any you know, amendment or amendments approving a township, city, or countywide tax. So those are the new supermajority requirements that would be in the Constitution that could only be changed with the Constitutional Amendment included in this proposal. And then lastly, there's some limited replacement revenues where the proponents would use the Constitution to mandate um, money that's currently primarily in the state general fund, but also in school fund and transportation fund and other funds, shift money that's being used for those purposes at the state level and mandate some you know, limited replacement revenue, right? And so, for example, for counties, I'll give you the specifics. They would dedicate 10% um, of all the liquor revenue uh, from liquor taxes that the state imposes on liquor, uh, alcoholic beverages, beer, and wine. Um, you know, that generates uh, for the state about, uh, that would generate about $28.5 million. Okay, so counties are being hit with a $2.8 billion shortfall. They've decided to provide $28.5 million from liquor taxes to county as a replacement. Some of that money already goes um, to- uh, um, To the county. Uh, to the county. Uh, some of it goes to school aid. Some of it goes to convention facilities. Um, some of it goes to the general fund. So in addition, they would take 10% of the tax currently levied on tobacco products, which goes to the general fund and give that 
to um, counties, require the legislature to appropriate that to counties. Uh, and that would be um, 89.3 million. So the total replacement revenue for counties uh, for the 2.9 billion actually in property tax revenue lost is 117.9 million. That's about, oh, replaces about 4.1% of the lost revenue. That's a, you know, that's good news if you're a county. If you're a school district, the proposal provides no replacement revenue. If you're a library district that levies a tax, no replacement revenue. If you are a um, parks authority, a fire authority, uh, uh, multi-jurisdictional law enforcement and fire, you know, any sort of multi-jurisdictional authority other than a city, village, township, or county, um, the proposal provides no replacement revenue and prohibits you from levying any property taxes. So, so that's you know the three things that the proposal does. It one uh, bans property taxes essentially in any form moving forward after 2025. It requires a super majority vote for any tax increases, including those that might be necessary to replace the $17.3 billion in property taxes that are eliminated. Uh, and then it provides some crumbs, you know, some limited revenue of about $117.8 million for um, counties. And I would note the proposal claims that it is in lieu, in addition to and not in lieu of county revenue share provided by law. But nothing in the proposal prohibits the legislature from changing the law to reduce or eliminate revenue sharing. In fact, because this would have such an impact on state revenues, arguably the state may have no choice but to eliminate statutory revenue sharing in order to balance its budget. So the net impact, you know, may be a net reduction uh, in replacement revenue if statutory revenue sharing has to be eliminated because the state can't afford to pay. Cities, village, and townships are a little better off, uh, but they're uh, limited uh, to using it only for some pretty narrowly defined essential services. You can think for cities and villages and townships, they would get um, approximately 1.8 billion in replacement revenue, uh, but that would replace, you know, essentially 4.5 billion in property tax revenue that they would lose. So they would get about a 38.5% replacement, you know, not accounting for any changes to statutory revenue sharing that would be necessitated by the whole created uh, in the state budget. So, yeah, so this impacts local millages are gone, you know, for your veterans, for your roads, for public safety, those are all gone, right? Based on this proposal. Um, yep. And then, you know, you're talking state revenue sharing, you know, statutory side for counties, Dean is what about two? 240 million. Yeah, 240, 250. That's probably gone too. So yeah, <laughs> your net is actually less if statutory revenue sharing uh, goes away because that 118 million is not going to make up for all that. So yeah, I mean, when you start talking about the services impacted, like we talked about in the beginning, public health, public safety, your jails, uh, you know, your court system, your child welfare system, your, you know, juvenile services and mental health and so many different things. So yeah, yeah if you if you think about it, 
you may have some revenue at a county still to the extent you're allowed under state law to um, charge a 911 system fee on you know land and, and mobile lines. So you can, I guess, fund at least in part your 911 operators or your 911 system. But the problem is you wouldn't have any money to dispatch anyone or the local units wouldn't have any money to dispatch anyone to provide assistance. Uh, to the person on the other end of the 911 line. I, mean, I, can't well even imagine, I can't even imagine that replacement revenue would fund a very small sheriff's department in jail in each oh, county across the state. Right. We're talking 117, you know, 0.8. Um, Not going to happen. Million, that's statewide, right? To replace, you know, uh, 1.6 and property tax revenue just at the county level. And we know that this proposal would reduce state revenue uh, by approximately $4 billion. Um, and if the, the state has to plug a $4 billion hole in its budget, you know, it has to look at discretionary spending. Uh, obviously it has to fund mandatory funding, but um, statutory revenue sharing for counties and others is technically discretionary. And as we have seen in prior uh, type budget years, some decades ago now, but uh, when the state has a shortfall, typically uh, statutory revenue sharing takes a hit or a pause. Uh, and so uh, I think you'd have to offset that replacement revenue with, you know, in addition to the lost property tax revenue, the likely um, severe reduction or elimination of statutory revenue sharing. I really hope we don't release this podcast before Christmas. Why? Oh, it's not good so news for the citizens of the state that, you know, expect, you know, safe communities, quality services for their money uh, from their local units of government and from their school systems. Uh, certainly, I don't know how we would uh, attract people to this state. Uh, that's going to be my point if we're talking about increasing our population, which will be another podcast we're doing. It uh, seems to work very counter. Counter, right. Uh, if you look at the states that are growing, I'm not aware of any of them that are, you know, as significantly eliminating property taxes as is proposed in this proposal. Right. Uh, oh, let's just call it. They're trying to bankrupt government in a way well, that the there's back no money the left. To yeah. The 2000s from some groups was that, you know, their objective was to um, drown government in the bathtub so it couldn't provide services to, uh, to the citizens, and I think effectively that's that's what this proposal would do, particularly at the local level, but significantly at the state level too. Certainly for schools and education. I mean, and you, as as you think about it, as you know, at the county level, you, for many governmental entities, uh, property taxes are either the significant or exclusive method for raising revenue. Right? You you may with voter approval levy limited property taxes. There are significant limitations on the amount of taxes that can be levied and no taxes ever levied without approval of a majority of the voters you know, levy the tax uh, since 1978 under the Headley voters approved the taxes that they choose to impose on themselves. Uh, and um, it's not as if counties have a mechanism or legal authority to impose other taxes. Yeah. Um, you know, the counties can't impose a sales tax that would require a constitutional amendment in addition to state law changes with supermajority requirements now under this proposal if it were to take effect. You can't levy an income tax. Uh, you can't 
levy alternative taxes on property, you don't have authority to levy other taxes. And there may be some fees such as the 911 fee that we discussed, but it's not as if counties would be in a position to help themselves. Even if citizens wanted to raise revenue in another way, because they, they would prefer another form of tax compared to a property tax, they do not have that option in your counties. And that's the case with all other governments. You know, the cities have limited authority uh, with voter approval to levy a limited income tax, but that would not be sufficient for cities to make up their revenue losses. Uh, so uh, yeah, there are other entities. Uh, I'll give you one example. If you live in Southeast Michigan, uh, we have the benefit of the Huron-Clinton Metro Park Authority. Mm -hmm. it's, it's almost a hundred years old, right? That exists under uh, a special law, a local act enacted in the 1930s. It can only raise revenue in one of two ways. Uh, one, it can charge an admission fee, which they do, a small admission fee to use the Metro Parks, uh, or a property tax, which they levy to support and maintain the park system. Uh, well, this proposal would, pro would eliminate the major source of funding, property taxes. Uh, and because it's a local act under our 1963 constitution, there is no mechanism, even if the legislature could master a, a supermajority vote for the legislature to amend a local act anymore. And so there's not an, even a legal path to give them an alternative revenue source. Um, so what would an entity like that do? Either charge exorbitant admission fees or they would close. This is scary. This is really scary. I have one last question for you. Have you ever seen a proposal like this that is this irresponsible? Have you irresponsible, ever Irresponsible, draconian, <laughs> math challenged. You pick the adjective. Um, you know, certainly not in Michigan, but I don't believe I've seen one um, this restrictive, you know, in, seriously considered in, in, in any other state in recent history that I'm aware of. Certainly we have tax limitations that the voters have approved. Um, you know, we have the Headley Amendment here, there's Proposition 13 in California. Um, you know, we had Proposal A in 1994, which imposes certain uh, uh, restrictions and actually eliminated school operating taxes for uh, primary residences, right? Yeah. Uh, and provided, um, you know, in that instance, this, the voters provided multiple alternative mechanisms for replacement revenue so that schools could continue to operate if their school operating property taxes are eliminated for the most part. Here, uh, they only do the first half. They eliminate the property taxes, but they don't provide sufficient uh, replacement revenue or, or mechanisms for citizens to opt to do that on their own. I'll give you one other thing that also sort of appears unprecedented. A number of your counties certainly a number of other local governments, local government authorities, go to their voters and ask for permission to borrow money and issue bonds and notes. And in almost every instance, those bonds and notes pledge, promise to repay those notes to the investors with revenues from a property tax that's levied. In fact, in many instances, they promise to levy sufficient property taxes to pay back the investment made by these private investors. Uh, and uh, there's no exception uh, for uh, bonded indebtedness. Um, simply, if there are notes to be paid off in 2025, 
with property taxes, there's no authority to levy the property taxes to pay off those notes. Now that then, in addition to the burdens on counties and other units, raises the risk of a default and a downgrade in credit rating and severe you know, financial implications and potential you know, downgrades to credit ratings if you miss a bond payment, which is something that typically does not happen uh, in this state. But I that's can't the risk imagine. that's being assumed. And even in in the Headley Amendment in the 1970s here in Michigan, we saw an exception for bonded indebtedness. This doesn't even recognize that these binding legal commitments to investors in our communities are out there, uh, and it would essentially blow those commitments up. Yeah, so obviously some wide-ranging implications here that may, may or may not have been uh, considered when, when making this proposal. Well, Steve, thanks for your time today. Uh, Great history lesson uh, in the beginning there on how all these different, the, the three different methods of, of getting change and where this one comes in from, and then obviously a very in-depth uh, discussion on the implications of this proposal. So thank you today for your time. We appreciate it, Dina. Thank you. Uh, I, I do have to say I'm a bit biased, but anytime you can get two Steves on a podcast, it's going to oh. be a good podcast. So uh, I'm sure everyone is wow. really excited to hear that too. So with that, Thanks, we'll really appreciate it. Yeah, being, being with you today, Steve. Yeah, thank you, Steve. And thank you, Dina. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Podcast 83.